Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you want to talk about how did the Anzac legend start, look no further than Monash. He allowed this culture to develop and to grow, and they became one of the greatest fighting forces of the Australian military. Welcome to the Warrior You podcast, proudly presented by Hindsight Leadership and Resilience. The Warrior You podcast delves deep into the topics of leadership, resilience, and human optimization. Our mission statement is simple. You're the mission. A massive shout out to our main sponsor, gym equipment specialist, Aussie Strength, a proud Australian veteran-owned business who have kitted out home garage gyms and huge fitness centres all over Australia and globally. During this series, Trent and Bram will be pulling apart leadership styles through history and attributing them with a score for different areas of leadership. By doing this, they hope to find skills and attributes that modern leaders may or may not want to emulate. This week on the Warrior Youth podcast, Bram and Trent are going to delve deep into the leadership style of General Sir John Monash as a leader. Monash was born in Melbourne, Australia in 1865. He was a German Jew who spoke German as his native language. As an academic through the 1890s and early 1900s, He worked as a civil engineer whilst also being active in the local militia. He became an Australian military commander of the First World War and is recognised by the Allies as our most innovative, empathetic, meticulous and successful general, not only from Australia, but from the war. Analyzing John Monash as a leader with Trenton Bram. Monash, what do we know about John Monash, Trent? Well, he... Uh, Jewish. That's the first thing you're going to lead with. Boom. It is. He was Jewish. And well, it's interesting because that permeates a lot of his military career. So I'm sure we'll dive into that. Yeah. He was born in Melbourne in Victoria, 27th of June, 1865. And as you said, was a son of German Jewish immigrants from Prussia. The family name was actually spelt Monash S-C-H, which pronounced the emphasis on the second syllable and both John and the family spoke German as their native language. Did not know mm. that. And there you go. So it would sound like Monash. Yeah, and so upon yeah. the commencement of World War One, I, I think most German speakers changed their names and they removed the German pronunciation and he spoke English up until his death, even though his native first language was German. He attended Scotch College for his schooling and graduated from the University of Melbourne with a Master of Engineering in 1893 and a Bachelor of Arts, Inter- Bachelor of in- Laws. In- mm. Interestingly, mm. he passed his matriculation at 14 years of age at Scotch College. 14. Yeah, who, who, who hasn't? Oh, right. That's a, that's a strange <laughs> thing, is it? All right. So throughout the 1890s and 1900s, 
He worked as an engineer on projects throughout Victoria, whilst also being active in the local militia, the precursor to the reserves, I guess. Mm. Played a major role in the introduction of reinforced concrete into construction practices in Australia. He had a large responsibility in that. Ongoing roles within the building concreting industry, became the president of Victorian Institute of Engineers and Institute of Civil Engineers in London. So he was actually quite influential in his field. That's incredible. I did not know that. As you say, he was, a, he was an engineer on par excellence. His intelligence and effective command saw him well, rapidly rise in the militia. He became lieutenant in the North Melbourne Battery on the 5th of April, 1887, so three years, following which he was promoted to captain in 1895. And April 1897 was promoted to major and given command of the battery. Hmm. Then he was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel in the Intelligence Corps in 1908 and was given command of the 13th Infantry Brigade in 1912, promoted to Colonel in 1913. That is a fairly meteoric rise. Yeah, well, I'm not sure about the the speed of that, but even during that time, he was already starting to raise eyebrows, you know, Mm. with his Jewish heritage at around the the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. And it just... It just stuck with him the entire time. He faced a lot of racism and, you know, outright ostracisation at times as a result of his background. And obviously he went to World War One, right? Indeed. As, a, as what, an engineer? Well, he's a senior officer at this point. So he was brigade commander as a colonel and got promoted a little later and then backdated. Mm. He was appointed as the commander of the 4th Infantry Brigade, which consisted back then of the 13th, 14th, 15th and 16th battalions, although his appointment was opposed within the military, oh, due to his German and Jewish mm. ancestry. Mm. And his experience of commanding troops in battle took place during Gallipoli. Monash Valley, it's named after him. There you go. So, inspiration, motivational score. I don't know how you scored it, Trent, but I gave him 10 out of 10. So his determination to serve his country and, you know, the organisation, the militia initially, despite contemporary prejudices against Jews... I mean, Germans, mm, yeah. they inspired those around to excel and to apply themselves despite being looked down upon for their rank, religion or class. So, so other people from, that were prejudiced. He particularly demonstrated empathy for his own troops and improved cohesiveness whenever he commanded. As I said, he, he faced that intense racism and unwarranted scrutiny right up until the Prime Minister intervened later when he was Corps Commander on the Western Front. Mm. He inspired Thomas Blamey. Who cites Monash? Who cites Monash as the reason for his persistence to apply himself to the military? And he became Australia's first and only field marshal during World War Two. There's a contentious character around Blamey. Historians argue for and against. There's a topic maybe we should get around at a later stage. Yeah, for sure. So he inspired his troops through making one of his main priorities improving their conditions at the front and looking to minimise their casualties. Well, who would have thought an army officer would try that? He would also insist on logistical arrangements and cautious battlefield tactics in, a, in opposition to British battle plans which favoured for immediate victory, which cared little for the soldiers' conditions or the casualty rates. They just wanted to move the line. His unorthodox approach, being a Jew and an Australian, challenging the, the military judgment of senior British commanders, further strengthened the Anzac image of looking after your mates. So there you go. You want to start talking about Anzacs? It might have been Jewish-German mm. who started it. Well, it's... You made a comment about who would have thought an army officer taking care of their troops, but if we put ourselves back in in the mindset in that period, they're probably 
you know, two schools of thought around, you know, looking after troops as well as, well, troops are there to just do a task and get on with it. I don't think every general didn't care about the troops and mm. only wanted to push over the top. I think that's, that's possibly a myth that's been perpetuated. I'm sure not everyone thought that. It is possible that Monash was the grandfather of combined arms approach. I reckon he was. So layering yeah. artillery fire, mm. then machine gun fire, and then finally the soldiers coming from innovative directions or times of the day. Eh? The use of armour. Doctrinally, he, he originally struggled with the employment of armour. He knew it was a good thing, but initially he struggled with how he was going to use it. But, mm. you know, the Battle of Hamel, he worked out how to employ armour to success. Yeah, and he was very good at getting the British generals to see his innovative tactics and actually getting them to, to buy into his plans, which was unusual for, for a colonial power. For sure. His inspiration affected many people, ordinary soldiers through to the entire Allied war effort. His inspiration provided and pioneered many advancements and tactics. He was probably the reason for the deepening of the Anzac culture. He impacted Australian military cooperation. Inspiration should be given further credit as Monash was an Australian, like a little fish in the big pond with the British, French and American generals and revolution of military tactics. His innovation in tactics were, was a cognitive leap. It just hadn't been in, employed. This combined arms concept of warfare hadn't been employed anywhere near to the extent that he applied it. I think from that perspective alone set him apart from the other generals. And in fact, he's widely recognised by the US as probably the greatest general on the Western Front. Wow. If he'd been a British, he'd have been, a, he'd have been folklore. Mm. Mm. Yeah, not too many cons to his leadership style, to be fair. Yeah, and, and inspiration and motivation, not too many cons at all, other than the fact that he probably wasn't a pop culture type person like Simpson and his donkey or Prime Minister yeah. Billy Hughes and you know those sort of inspirational figures. Okay, providing purpose and direction. So I'll give him 7 out of 10, I'll tell you why. His main goal was to secure victory while minimising casualties, improving the lives and morale of soldiers. So he gave them what he was all about. They knew his leadership narrative, for use of a better term. After arriving in Egypt in January 1915, Monash's brigade was assigned to the New Zealand and Australian Division under Major General Alexander Godley. And after training, the brigade took part in the Gallipoli campaign. Now, he was assigned the role of divisional reserve, so Monash's brigade played a minor military role initially defending the line between Pope's Hill and Courtney's Post, where he applied himself by focusing on independent decision-making and organisational logistics. And it's that ravine behind that line that became known as Monash Valley. Yeah. So he was promoted to Brigadier General in July. During the August offensive that was launched by the Allies to break the deadlock on the peninsula, so Monash's brigade was ordered to capture Hill 971, the highest point on the Sari Bear Range, and Monash's leadership saw him provide logistics and battle plans in order to achieve his goals of victory whilst minimising casualties. So a lot of what he did was, was really good planning, solid, solid tactical planning with strategic effect. But the brigade's attack failed because of the poor maps, heavy resistance, mountainous terrain, and overall offensive also stalled, resulting in disaster for the last coordinated effort to defeat the Turkish forces. Mm. notwithstanding that the Turks had German generals and German brigadiers, German colonels, German advisers, 
and Ataturk. <laughs> they had a lot going for them, that's yeah. that's for sure. And I also I think that maybe the bit that's missing there is that individual motivation. The Turks were defending their own country. Yeah, imagine. We were, yeah, can you imagine? Like if Monash had broken through, they'd be having a very different conversation with their sweethearts at home. Um, yeah. They could not allow this attack to succeed. Yeah. Well, what did they start with? Three and a half thousand, nearly three and a half thousand, and they were down to 1,500-ish on the back of the campaign. Mm. On the 21st of August, Monash led them in an attack on, on Hill 60 before it was withdrawn from the peninsula. Monash's brigade was then tasked with occupying a quiet sector around Boochops Hill, where Monash used his engineering knowledge to improve the brigade's position to withstand the winter, and he worked to improve the conditions that his troops would have to endure. And then the evacuation of Gallipoli occurred soon after. So he had vision. You know, he provided purpose. He gave them direction, but he really struggled to implement his vision at Gallipoli due to having to take orders from superiors. Gosh. That happens. We all do that. Yeah, and therefore his leadership capacity was probably watered down. He was able to work towards his vision of improving conditions for the troops under his command, and that would be a continual theme of his throughout that war and the next. And I wonder if that's because quite a humble guy, because his humility shows through even after the war. So after the war, he returns back to Melbourne and he goes about just being an engineer again and travelling around Australia and Victoria, just doing engineering tasks, and he shies away from the public life. And I'm just wondering if it's because this is the type of person Mm. that he was, that he was focusing on others and not himself. I mean, that's a a really valuable characteristic of any leader. Yeah, for sure. You know, Charles Bean, the the famous official Australian war historian, Mm. he noted that Monash was more effective the higher he rose within the army in rank. The higher he got up in rank, he had greater capacity to use his skills for planning and an organisation because he was a meticulous planner and he was able to innovate with new technologies and tactics. So the higher up he got, the more effective he was. In fact, Prime Minister Billy Hills arrived at the front before the Battle of Hamill, prepared to replace Monash, but after consulting with senior officers and after seeing the superb power of planning and execution displayed by him, he changed his mind. Yeah, it's interesting about that whisper campaign that was going Mm. on around Monash at the time. It was really intense. And, you know, they were reporting back to Parliament, back to Australia, and saying things like he lacks the support of his staff, he's incompetent, he's overrated, pompous. And you can imagine that, pompous. And, And so ostensibly Billy Hughes' trip was to raise morale on the Western Front. So he went to France to raise morale with this side task of, removing Monash from command. And General Rawlinson put Monash in charge of the Hamill offensive. And part of that was to gather additional evidence of how incompetent he was. But it turns out his planning was brilliant. And when Hughes went on to question the officers afterwards, to a man they said how brilliant he was and how patient he is, how humble he is, and then it falls to Billy Hughes. And he essentially publicly accuses the accusers of straight out lying. And Mm. from then on, Monash's position as the core commander is, is completely safe. Rise and rise thereafter. Yeah, yeah that's it. Mm. We should talk about the Battle of Hamel because it was significant in, this, in Australian history. M- many people may not know this, but you know Monash really pushed combined arms approach. World War I. He had the support of the British Fourth Army, commanded by Sir Henry Rawlington, and supported by the British Fifth Tank Brigade, along with a detachment of American troops. 
and they won a, a small but operationally significant victory. And even more important than maybe Hamill was Amion Platoon. So that was, what, 8th of August, 1918. And, yeah, and so the Australian force, the Australian Corps, was given the strategic task of capturing the enemy artillery. That was, that was their key objective, and that was on the ver- in the very first phase. And Monash was responsible for that part of planning. And, and this was all about the artillery not being able to inflict any casualties on, on the Allied forces. And so for the first phase it was, well, let's circumvent the enemy and go straight for the artillery. Unusual in the day. Mm. The Hamill offence is that proof of concept. Yeah. You know, he, he essentially rolled out this combined arms approach in this test sandpit, if we, if we could call it that, because really the Hamill offensive was a high ground feature in front of the village. And there was a, there's only 6,000 enemy soldiers against, you know, friendly forces, about 7,600 allied guns across those few miles. But Hamill represented a change in warfare that was then rolled out across the rest of the front because of his clever use of deception and his innovative use of technology. Most people don't know. He got the air liaison officers to strap supplies of ammo to the wings of aircraft and drop them on handmade parachutes that they literally stitched up in the trenches to supply to the forward edge of the battle area. And he also stripped some tanks of their weaponry and a whole range of other pieces of equipment to bring ammo forward. And he literally replaced about 1,200 supply soldiers that weren't required because he would just roll his tanks right up to the, to the FIBA. And something else that wasn't done at that particular point in time, he published his plans and then he called in the air commanders, the battalion and brigade commanders, the artillery commanders, supply, and he says, here's the plan. Now, what I want you to do is make this better, hash it out, and, and they sat around improving it for hours. And I think this is really important as well because... He uses diversionary attacks south of the enemy defensive position for two weeks leading up to the attack. Every morning at 0300, he'd have the artillery fire for about two weeks. And in each one of those artillery barrages, he would have it go for a certain duration of time and he would fire gas. And of course, the Germans would all wake up, they'd throw on their gas masks, reducing their vision, their field of vision and their ability to hear in order to use that as a deception because on the morning of the attack, he didn't fire gas, giving the friendlies the opportunity to to close. And also one of the other issues is at the time that the the British tanks had kind of let the diggers down before and about 10,000 Australian soldiers had died in a previous attack where the British tanks were the the linchpin of that particular attack. And so Mm. what he did was, the Australians didn't want to work with these tanks again. So what he did was he cross-trained them he sent Australians to go and live with the British tankers and they all got to drive around and, you know, left stick, right stick and drive the tanks and fire the guns and those sorts of things. And in the end, the British tankers, you know, painted Aussie names on the tanks. They, they painted the regimental colours on the tanks mm. and, that sort of and they ended up getting to trust each other. Mm. And, and finally, those British tanks were put under command of the Australian Infantry Company commanders. That was the change. So in, instead of the tanks rolling around doing their thing on the battlefield, they were responding to the Australian request for support. And that was fundamentally different. We take that for granted now, but that was new. That was cognitively advanced for the time. Yeah, and I think the whole idea of combined arms, you know, and being able to break through that Hindenburg line, you know, that was an Australian general that pushed that narrative 
and then and then World War One was fire complete, and it was mm. because of Monash's you know ability to forecast that, see it into the future, mm. um, see a vision and, and carry it through. And and you know it wasn't just the enemy he was fighting; he was fighting a lot of the British generals over his idea to. To, to take a more cautious approach, to keep within your supply lines, to let to yep. let logistics, you know, he was he was Australia's version of Rommel, really. Indeed, mm. a few pros was willing to propose new ideas, which he believed were effective, even if they were unpopular. He learned from early mistakes at Gallipoli and changed his methods accordingly, so it was adaptable. He was able to emphasise with his men and prioritise their well-being. This achieved one of his aims in improving the conditions for the troops. As his leadership rose, he's willing to adopt more responsibility and, and noted that his decisions would carry more weight. Demonstrated moral courage in more, more than one occasion. Yeah, some cons. You know, his leadership did suffer early failures at Gallipoli, but mind you, every, everyone on our side did. His goals of improving conditions for the troops on the front during Gallipoli, you know, it, it was... When, you, when you're doing wave attack after wave attack, you're going to have high casualties. His decisions were often overruled by his superiors. I think that's probably um, probably true of all generals at the time. Yeah. But highly centralised. So all in all, his ability to provide a purpose, motivation, uh, vision, direction, I think he's uh, he's up there, isn't he? I think so. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, you know, he was he was very clear, very clear on what was required for success at Hamill. Very yeah. clear. He knew what what needed to be done mm. in order to achieve that, and he eventually he eventually got it done. The use of the Americans in that battle as well is actually a really interesting story. There's a whole side story, you know, with General Pershing mm. trying to prevent it from happening. And if you read down that path, it's actually uh, it's actually quite interesting. Uh, he he eventually gets Rawlinson on side to you know provide top cover. The lead battalion's already too far forward, so we can't communicate with them, but we'll just take the, the American companies out of the rear battalions and those sorts of things. And he was able to generate that team of teams uh, concept. Far earlier, he's quite the collaborative leader, which I guess takes us on the leadership style. Yeah, 10 out of 10. And, and the reason for that, I think, is because he was, he was an, adaptive, an adaptive leader, I think. He was participative with, with his troops. He was delegative to the the combined arms that he worked with you know he was collaborative with allied generals in the best part but he was an independent thinker innovative experimental approaches not afraid to think outside the box he really was a a, a man a leader ahead of his time he's a real deal wasn't he absolutely mm. i mean i've got heaps of notes here on on you know it it just all comes back to these words independent Independent, independent. He independently Innovative. made his decisions. He independently thought about new solutions. Mm. He ind- so he did all this stuff on the side, and then what mm. he would do is he would then frame it in such a way, and then package it up, and then bring people in as part of that vision. Very, mm. very interesting because I think that he was very smart. Obviously, he was very smart, and he came up with really incredible ways to meet problems. And then what he would do is he would get other people to buy in on those, whether it was saying that, hey, great idea you had on this, <laughs> you know, or whether it was have we considered doing doing this and then letting other people maybe get the credit for some of it. He brought in the air commanders and the and the brigade and battalion commanders and, and gave them the opportunity to work on the plan too. You know, again, that's well ahead of his time. 
and and in the face of British pressure. Yep. And and let's not forget, Australians wanted a hero, and so they started to. So the Australian soldiers, as opposed to the other, you know, and maybe that was part of why some of the other generals were jealous of him, and were, were having rumour and innuendo because the soldiers did like him. So mm. pros, independent, collaborative leadership style, enduring legacy of his his leadership style, improved morale cohesiveness at all levels and as you said before you know just sending people to work with the british when that shows great vision ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Not afraid to insist on his own methods, even in the face of pressure, personal courage and confidence, collaborative style, adoption of innovative ideas when he thought that it would work. Um, yeah. Which, you got to wonder how much was happening on the other side. You know how many how many innovative ideas were coming from the German side or the Turkish side in that case? Well, I think you know the spring offensive in eighteen was largely due to the Germans having shut down the Eastern Front and signed the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, mm. and you know within within weeks, I think it was two or three weeks, they mm. managed to rush hundreds of thousands of troops on the Eastern Front mm. back across to the Western Front, which is what allowed them to make that push and it was sheer weight of numbers mm. and ultimately as we as we now know there was nothing new and re- really revolutionary about that push other than there was substantially greater numbers that had been driven through formation boundaries but mm. you know it wasn't exactly revolutionary at the time and, and ultimately they culminated yeah you know it, it has to be said that you know monash was cognitively more advanced than mm. anyone on the german side or the allies wow yeah, so leadership style, I can't fault him, 10 out of 10. I guess the only con in all of this, perhaps, is that he was never able to control the narrative of, of the people who were jealous. But then not everyone's going to like you. And, I mean, ultimately, he was just so good he couldn't be ignored. The Prime Minister didn't really get rid of him. So yeah, he's quite achiever in that regard. Yeah. Can't fault Indeed. him. Enduring legacy, I gave him 9 out of 10. He had an enduring legacy, particularly in Australia, where he's hailed as one of Australia's finest and most successful military figures. You know, one of the most recognisable figures in Australian military history, for sure. And then what's interesting is subsequent Australian military figures almost always draw their own inspiration from Monash's example, myself <laughs> included. But I, I do I do reflect on what he was able to achieve and think about that deeply. Yeah, and according to British historian AJP Taylor, Monash was the only general of creative originality produced by the First World War. No big deal. That's interesting. Like creative originality, the only one produced by the First World War. I mean, we're talking about a very special cat. <laughs> there's, there's not too much original thought. There's a saying around that, right? So think of this. He was the first Australian to fully command Australian forces. So put that into perspective. And he took, as following Australian commanders did, a relatively independent line with his British superiors. So demonstrating independence from them. Yeah, there's more to this from a coming of age for for Australia than there is just around what he did as a leader, if you think about that. You know, he he sort of rose on the back of Gallipoli as well. So if we put our heads in that that space, Mm. 
There's not a family group that hasn't been heavily touched by the casualties. What do we have? Two and a half million people? I can't remember exactly, but not a huge population at all. Mm. Uh, so every family had been touched. We'd oh, just withdrawn yeah. from Gallipoli. Yep. We were we were struggling to to find wins at the time. And, you know, we roll out Monash, who makes the first decisive victory on the Western Front. For me, his secret was understanding Australian culture and understanding young Australian men and not subjecting them to the same hierarchical leadership model that the British were using. And mm-hmm. so what that did is it created an esprit de corps, a certain culture. If you want to talk about how did the Anzac legend start, look no further than Monash. I've just yeah. said the greatest thing ever said on the Warrior You podcast. Like that that's where this starts. That's where the Anzac started. He allowed this culture to develop and to grow. And they became one of the greatest fighting forces, the Australian military, punching way above their weight towards the end of the First World War and well and truly in the Second World War. He promoted the concept of the commander's duty to ensure the safety and well being of his troops. If Simon Senek wants to talk about leaders mm-hmm. eat last, start with Monash. Eat last. You know, he had a he had a philosophy of collective individualism, you know, which is very Australian at the time. Yeah, responsibility for his own actions, contrary to popular belief, as this was rarely practiced by Allied commanders, and especially in World War One, you know, everything was the fault of the men. And he strengthened yep. the cohesive culture of leadership. He trailblazed modern military tactics, as you quite eloquently put it before. You know, combined arms, logistical spread. And synchronisation as well. The synchronicity of the operational planning at the time was pretty agricultural Mm. and and he changed it so that each component of an operation had small, measurable, time-based, synchronised milestones that you had to achieve on Mm. the minute. In fact, that Battle of Hamel was 93 minutes, Mm. a full three minutes later than his planning predictions. If you look at some of the Civil War battles, they're very similar to what was happening in the Spanish War and then the First World War. When you look at those diagrams, yep. then you look at Hamel mm. and thereafter and the, and the, the arrows, <laughs> the blocks, yep. you start to see penetration. You start, yeah, right. So you yep. start to see someone who's actually saying, I'm going to create so much chaos for the enemy through the manoeuvrist approach. Mm. Which, which it isn't. It isn't the manoeuvrist approach because that's different. We'll go Correct. into that in another. But it, but it is an approach through manoeuvre, yeah. not, not to be confused. Yeah, and he just broke away from that, hey, here we are, we're just going to, you know, we're going to put artillery over the top of us and we're going to walk. You know, he broke away from that. Yeah, and so many soldiers who were under Monash saw these new tactics, saw and they became leaders in their own right. So Monash's staff officer was Thomas Blamey who would become Australia's only field marshal, uh, that shows a, a lasting impact that Monash had on military thinking for those under him. His face is on the $100 note. Demonstrates the impact of his leadership and service to the country. There's streets named after him, universities, suburbs, scholarships, military units. Yeah, and he's still remembered with reverence and respect as Australia's greatest military figure. And, of course, he was knighted and he received a, a bunch of other uh, awards. And he also... You know, he died in 1931 of a heart attack. He was given a state funeral 
and they estimated about 300,000 Australians turned out for his funeral. Mm. Uh, it was the nation's largest funeral crowd, given a Jewish service, had a 17-gun salute. And he instructed that his tombstone should be simple and simply state his name and date of birth and death. That's it. The world doesn't know him, and they should. No, like, that's it. It's incredible. A- if you think about Douglas Haig, Lawrence of Arabia, Kamal Ataturk, probably, and mate, that's going to be a ripper of a podcast, Patain and Fock Hindenburg, Ludendorff, General Pershing, right? You know, I mean, I mean, just, I mean, Lawrence of Arabia, every kid's probably going to know that. Yeah, and yet here we've got this guy who was the grandfather of combined arms. He was the reason that the Anzac legend really sort of took hold. Oh. And the only people that know about him are Australians and the only and only really, unless you listen to this podcast, you know, military people. And yet he was the reason that the Allies won could be well and truly attributed to to Monash. I'm, mm. I'm, I'm going to say that. I'm happy for any historians to call us out on that. Drop it in the comments below. How it ended for them. Gave him 10 out of 10. <laughs> you know, he was recognised by the Allies as our most innovative, empathetic, meticulous, successful general, not only from Australia but from the from the war on the Western Front. He was, in hel- he was held in high regard by the British as his management, cooperation and successes on the Western Front not only helped secure Allied success but also paved the way for a more equal footing within the militaries of the Commonwealth. So... You know, he set us up for success in the next world war, truly. Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery, so he was like a hero of World War II, who'd served under Monash's command in World War I. He wrote, I would name Sir John Monash as the best general on the Western Front in Europe. And that comes from yeah. Montgomery, old Monty. Yeah. For his services during the war, in addition to his creation as a Knight Commander of the Order of the Bath. God, that sounds so cool. Monash was appointed as a Knight Grand Cross of the Order of St. Michael and St. George on the 1st of January 1919. He also received numerous foreign honours. The Australian government honoured Monash with promotion to the full rank of general explicitly in recognition of his long and distinguished service within the Australian military forces on 11th of November 1929. Mm. So he was welcomed home to Australia on 26th December. Can you imagine the crowd? would have been massive. Crazy. Um, And then he would leave the army to work in civilian positions, the head of the State Electricity Commission of Victoria, and he was Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne, 1923 to 1931, yet remained a member of the reserves in case Australia required his service during another time of war. Very interesting. He was a founding member of the Rotary Club, Australia's first Rotary Club. Did not know that. And the Zionist Federation of Australia and New Zealand. That doesn't surprise me. And, uh, yeah, well, he was one of the principal organisers of the annual observance of Anzac Day and was was on the board to plan Melbourne's monumental war memorial, the Shrine of Remembrance. And according to his biographer, Geoffrey Searle, in the 1920s, Monash was broadly accepted, not just in Victoria, as the greatest living Australian, demonstrating the continuing impact of his leadership and his service to the nation, even in the wake of World War I. That's amazing. That is amazing, isn't it? Mm. He died on 8th of October 1931 from a heart attack and he was given yeah. a state funeral. It's estimated 300,000 people. Indeed. Can you imagine that? In 1931, that is a lot of people. That's a lot of people today. Overall, the end of his life saw him continue to apply himself to using his leadership skills to serve the nation in a variety of capacities. 
and even after the war, he was acknowledged as the greatest living Australian. That wasn't just due to his wartime success, that was thereafter. So the post-war recognition in the form of historical acknowledgement, awards and honours, his public funeral demonstrates the immense impact and influence that his leadership style had. Yeah, he was really effective, impactful and worthy. And it should be said, heaps of reasons why. And a lot of it comes down to what makes a good leader a good leader or a great leader a great leader. Yeah. And I think if you haven't thought about Monash before and you're a student of leadership, really encourage you to to read as much as you can about Monash. Really, really impressive individual. Just a hard-working, no stone unturned, understood behavioural science before it was a thing. He applied intellectual rigour as well to the problems that he faced. Helps to be smart. So overall, 46 out of 50. It's going to be hard to top that. You know, it's his his attitude, his determination, independent-minded leadership. Mm. He provided inspiration and direction, the pillars of leadership. Yeah, he could he could inspire people to convince those under his command and even others of his vision to follow his plans, pursue his goals. He could get people to do what he wanted them to do because they wanted to do it. Jesus, it's that bloody simple. It's not complex. No, it's not. And and think about what he had working against him. He was a Jew. From German descent, you know, and he wasn't a he wasn't full time army as well when he when he came across from the militia. Mm. If you think about one of the key aspects to him as a leader, it was that collaborative leadership style, mm. as well as participative with his men, and the ability for him to to adapt and change to the circumstances. Adaptive leadership. Um, well and, before his time. Yeah, and understanding, I mean, this is the other thing too, understanding the cultural nuances of young Australian men in Gallipoli was the reason that so many of them returned home actually and the esprit de corps that he created, which is, for me, of all the stuff we've talked about today and as, in, as incredible as he is and, you know, our young researcher had an absolute field day with this. That was Finn Robottom, by the way, to shout out to Finn. One of the interesting aspects to this and the most important for me is how I'm now aware of the Australian Anzac traditions and where they really came from. It wasn't. It was a spark that set that blaze of Anzac tradition. It was Monash that did it, and I think that that should be remembered on Anzac days. Just how important he was to the to that, and because he understood the culture. If he had have implemented a British hierarchical leadership model across Australian soldiers. They would have just died, you know, on the vine. Yeah, they fought for their own culture and they created their own legacy. Obviously, Charles Bean had a lot to do with the the Anzac mythology and yeah. the story behind that, and he certainly raided Monash. But I'm wondering if if he was given as much credit as he should have been. No, but mm. that's what we're doing today. Credit to you, indeed. Could have won those four points back probably if you weren't Jewish and German. Not even joking. It, it's it's like he yeah. had he had that against him, and that was pulling him back. It wasn't until the prime minister intervened, who was going there to sack him, <laughs> it because was. of what he'd been t- told by yeah. officers within the army. Good. Who are we doing? Who are we doing next week? Uh, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, father of the Turks, the modern Turks. Mate, that is going to be epic. S- such an awesome. Awesome leader to study when you, you talk about a transformational leader, mm. and, and we do talk about transformational leadership. Look no further than Ataturk. 
And it's no surprise that when you and I are talking about content for hindsight for our company, you know, leadership, resilience, you know, we look at these leaders and we distill down the information and we go, wow, that that is how that person overcome. The, and there's many, you know, businesses now are going through similar trials and tribulations as some of these leaders went through in their history. And as you say, Ataturk, transformational leader, Mate, we've got some. Here's what we've got coming up. A couple of teasers. Jimmy Carter? That's going to be interesting, mate. Marcus Aurelius. People are asking me for it. It's coming. That'll be just a a whole weekend of podcasting. Ho Chi Minh, Boris Yeltsin. I'm looking forward to that. That'll be interesting. All right. That's us. So that's us for another week. Thank you. Hope everyone got something out of that. Thanks for listening to the Warrior You podcast. And next week, new leader. Thanks for listening to the Warrior You podcast. Did you know that our parent company, Hindsight, offers leadership and resilience training as well as workshops? If you would like to know more, please head to www.hindsightleadership.com. If you would like to become a supporter of the podcast, there's a donation tab at the bottom of the main podcast page. All contributions are greatly appreciated and help to keep the show on the road. If you're interested in the Warrior U military preparation course, you can find all the information through the podcast website page. Just click on the training tab. All this information and more can be found at www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.